1: Welcome to another episode of Kachaku Split Screen, the only podcast that won't send you a presidential text message. I'm back from vacation and we've got a lot to discuss, including our first thoughts on Assassin's Creed Odyssey, a game that Kirk and I will both be playing for many hours to come. We also talk about the news of the week on a Harry Potter open world game, Google's Project Stream finally getting revealed, and PlayStation Experience skipping this year. Then it's time for a Spider-Man spoiler cast where we give our final thoughts on the latest PS4 exclusive and get in-depth on the story. You know what they say, go get 'em, tiger. Let's go. We are back for another episode. I have returned. My name is Jason Trier. I am the news editor at Kotaku.com. back from my travels. And rejoined once again by
2: the editor at large of Kotaku.com, Kirk Hamilton. Hello, Kirk. Hello, Jason. It's so nice to see you and it's so nice to have you back. I hope you had a good I hope you had good travels. I did.
1: I wanted to Skype in from Spain, but I think my wife would have gotten mad if I tried to tried to do some work and record the podcast from abroad. But Maddie did an excellent job filling in for me. So thank yeah, you,
2: I think uh, I think she did. We had a really good time. We've heard a lot of very positive feedback from people about Maddie. So know if you're sending us emails saying Maddie should be on the show more, that um, you have been heard, and we totally agree. So we would we will aim to have Maddie back on um in the near future because yeah it was very it was very fun doing this you show. have been heard you have been listened to yeah um one quick note about last week's episode so there was an ad for a certain unnamed uh, uh e-cigarette company that we had nothing to do with, that we heard some complaints about and um, reached out to the, you know, to the, the people who handle the ad sales for our podcast and had those ads removed, asked them to not do that anymore. Sorry about that. Um, we don't really want to be advertising e-cigarettes. So, uh, you know, that happened. It wasn't something we had anything to do with and uh, hopefully it won't happen again. In totally
1: unrelated news, don't smoke e-cigarettes. E-cigarettes are bad. Um, you should just definitely not <laughs> get them. Um, so there's a lot to get to today. We have lots and lots of things to discuss. Uh, first, we are going to talk about some of the games that we have been playing. And since I was away for two weeks traveling, gallivanting in Spain and Gallivanting. Portugal,
2: I feel like if you're going to do something in Spain, you're going to gallivant. That seems,
0: oh yeah.
1: seems about right gallivanting and splurging on food um Amanda and I ate at some ridiculous restaurants absolutely ridiculous restaurants um some really good food really good food in Portugal especially mm. um a lot of fresh fish and whatnot. Um, but we also had a lot of time, uh, a lot of downtime to play Switch games because uh, th- whether it was us just like killing a couple hours before dinner in our hotel or taking flights, we took three different flights across the country. Um, we had a lot of Switch time. And so I got Amanda hooked on a PC game that just came to Switch called Into the Breach. And, real quick overview for people who haven't heard of Into the Breach, it's made by the people who made FTL. Um, it is this kind of bite-sized strategy game that's like a Kaiju version of chess where you play as giant robots protecting a city from monsters. And it's really, really cool. The big uh, gimmick is that every on every turn of this grid-based strategy game, you see what the monsters are about to do. So it's all about anticipation rather than you... Or sorry, it's all about reaction rather than anticipation. You don't have to worry like, oh no, what are they going to do on this next turn? You know exactly what they're going to do. And so the onus is on you to make smart decisions and it's really addictive it's really fun it's really challenging and amanda just couldn't stop playing it which i enjoyed um so i eventually i was like playing other stuff and then eventually i was like man amanda's playing it so much it makes me really <laughs> want to play it too so we were both sitting there playing into the breach a bunch um really fantastic game really good on switch especially um definitely worth even rebuying. Even if you play it on PC, it's just worth having handheld. Um, and I hope they add more stuff to it because I'm getting kind of sick of the same the same four maps and the, or the same four islands and the same kind of units that I've been using a bunch of times before. But man, what a good game. Yeah, I
2: wonder if going by FTL which got that sort of updated edition with all that new stuff it wouldn't surprise me if if uh, into the breach did as well which yeah i would dig i i really like playing it on switch i i didn't play that much on pc and haven't actually played that much yet on switch but you were telling me about Amanda and it was sort of similar i had the same i had the same thought of hmm i'm going to go going to go play a little bit of this game i think and it's a yeah, it's mm-hmm. a really it's a really good game and it does work on switch i hope there's a isn't it not, it's not out on phones yet right or or iPad no, or anything? No, it's just Switch and PC right now. Yeah, it seems like it would do well on mobile, so I'm yeah. assuming at some point it will come up. But the
1: out thing there. is, it needs... I, I don't know if it would work so well with... I mean, maybe... I'm sure it could work with yeah, touch Yeah, I think controls. it would, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, okay, i take that back. Yeah, i totally work with mm-hmm. touch controls. It'd be fine with t- touch controls. Yeah, um, I'm sure it will. Um, hopefully, they're focusing more on new stuff than they are on ports. But it's a very small team. I think their team is only a couple of people. So uh, I don't think they have the bandwidth for doing all these things.
2: Yeah, no, they seem to move at their own speed, which I've always respected. I talked to those guys at uh, the Game Developers Conference at the GDC Awards Oh, quite a while ago. It was when they were winning stuff for FTL, so it was years ago. And I was uh-huh. still doing, we used to do this more often as we would be backstage and talk to the winners. And a lot of times it was, it's like a really short interview and you don't have much time to say anything. And this, it was sort of the same way with those guys. They're really young when I met them. I remember just thinking, oh my God, you're, you're children and you made this amazing game. Good job. <laughs> and they were just really nice. And I, I get this sense from them that they just are very... They operate on their own speed. I think FTL was super successful, so they have the luxury of just saying, well, we're going to make another good game whenever we make it. And they clearly did. So, yeah, it just seems like they'll do um, Into the Breach stuff at their own pace, too, which, you know, more power to them. Their own pace, which is not faster than light. No,
1: <laughs> um, I also uh, have been playing a bunch of other stuff, including a little bit of Destiny, yeah. um, which you have been kind of mainlining since since I've been gone. I left the day the raid came out, um, and so I have not
2: gotten a chance to play that, but you certainly have. Yeah, I've played a lot of this and, of course, talked to Maddie about it some on the show, which was sort of fun to talk to someone who doesn't play Destiny, um, and now I get to talk <laughs> to someone who does about things that you still haven't seen that I have. i You know, I've talked enough about it on the show that we don't have to go super in-depth, but the things that I've been doing most recently are the most interesting things in the game, the things that are the hardest to get to in the game and kind of take the most of almost absurd dedication, at least to have gotten to at this point in time, instead of, you know, you could get to them in a month and it would require a little bit less hardcore play than I've been doing. But they've been really, really cool. So, What I've played uh, that's most notable over the last couple of weeks is I finally played the raid, got all the way up to the final boss, uh, Riven of a Thousand Voices, um, and also played this new dungeon called the Shattered Throne. Which is almost cooler than the Dungeon. Raid. It's more interesting than the Raid in some ways. So I'll maybe tell you a little bit about both. The Raid is... Um, so, you know, to anyone who doesn't know, Destiny Raid is always the big end game thing. Um, it's the most demanding thing in the game. It's kind of has the highest level requirement, especially this time they raised all the level requirements, so everything takes way longer to get to. Which I get, and I think is probably good in a lot of ways for the health of the game but it's just very it's left me very exhausted i'm actually not even really playing this (laughs) week and i'm kind of it's good for long term but less good for journalists who want to see the new stuff yeah and i do take into account that that's where i'm coming from that is my perspective is okay i really want to see this just to know what it is to write about it if i didn't have that in my life i would be more relaxed and would be fine with feeling like there was this out of reach thing that i was working toward um as it stands though i worked really really hard to get to the point where i could finally write and saw it so it is really good. It's a really good raid. It's a lot like other Destiny raids. Like I don't think that it's so dramatically different as to be all that noteworthy even though I've seen a lot of people say this is the best raid in Destiny history. It's fantastic. I kind I kind of agree with that, I think. I haven't, you know, I've only done it once. Um it is really complicated. Although I will
1: say there's there's always going to be a place in my heart, and I'm sure many others' hearts for Vault of Glass, yeah, just because yeah, it was yeah. the first I, time we ever experienced yes, anything like that. yes.
2: And there, are, but now when you look back at the Vault of Glass and you compare it to something like Oryx, there there you know you can see how their raid design has evolved over the years, and you know certainly some things are better. Um, and this one it feels closest to the to the to the Oryx raid to King's Fall in terms of how that raid was just so mechanically complex compared to every other raid actually in that game and i I think they kind of stepped back from that with um, with the one that was in Rise of Iron. Uh, well, I'm forgetting the name of that raid. What was it called? It was like the... Uh, Wrath of the Machine. That, there you go. The Wrath of the Machine. Like that had really creative encounters. And I kind of liked that about it, even though that raid was beaten, I think, in like two hours or something ridiculous. And then this uh-huh. one, of course, took 18 hours. Um, by the way, I I don't know if you followed all of this. One of the most remarkable things about this raid was that... Uh, Two teams beat it within the first 24 hours, and the third team, which um, was actually Datto, um, Stefan Janke, who's come on this show before to to, to talk with us about Destiny, he has a really great clan called Math Class. They do raids, too. It took them 24 hours and two minutes and they were so close And but they, they didn't, didn't get it. Get, yeah, there was, it's crazy. Yeah, there was some reward. I think there's like an emblem you get if you make it in 24 hours and they didn't get it because they were too sh- As they shouldn't. Uh, yeah, Do you no. remember,
1: by the way, uh, so I was watching Dado's stream for a couple hours and then I went to the airport and we flew to Barcelona and I landed and I uh, oh, you hopped texted on the me. airport <laughs> Wi-Fi when I landed and I texted you. I was like, holy shit, I just landed in Barcelona and nobody's beaten the rage yeah. still. They were like on the final boss and it took them hours Hours and hours together. Oh get yeah!
2: I mean, so now having done it, I totally get why it is so complicated. I mean, so our friend Adam, who writes for Mashable and is very, very um, into Destiny, and is you know he's rated a whole ton of times. He plays with a crew of people who are really he just hardcore. tweeted that he got to six hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's at six hundred, which I'm. I don't know if I'll ever even get there until the next expansion. But um, <laughs> he he played a lot more, and he was really great. He kind of sherped us and kind of just told us what to do on each encounter. There is almost nothing more surreal though than sitting down for one of those really complicated encounters and listening to someone tell you what's about to happen when you have no frame of reference. I, I can't even <laughs> recreate it here. I couldn't even attempt to do it because it's so convoluted and ridiculous and complicated. But each encounter is, is increasingly more complicated. And uh-huh. I, I can't even, Im- I just can't imagine the process of figuring some of it out. There's one encounter called the vault. Um, also, no, don't, I'm not going to spoil this for anybody who like hasn't done the raid and wants to see it. I'll just, I'll be vague. But one of the encounters, the second to last encounter is called the vault, and you have to unlock this vault. And to do that, you have to kind of cleanse these rifts on the ground, which is, it's all kind of familiar stuff if you've done a raid before. But there is this stuff with like, Penumbral and antumbral charges, and you have to assign like left and right qualities to each of these three things. And we're, we were using chat, the in-game chat, to leave a text record of what was happening that you could check at any moment. So you could pop open chat and see, oh, okay. And it was this code that was written out. It was so fucking complicated. And I was just laughing. And we actually beat it, you know, once we had someone explaining it to me. But I really, it really doubles down on that unbelievable mechanical complexity. Okay, this thing, and then if this happens, then this happens, and there's this, like, clockwork aspect to it. And that's cool, but also a a little overwhelming. And... Um, I don't know. It's it's a well made raid. I like it. And it's visually amazing. Like it is the coolest looking shit I've ever seen in a Destiny raid. The final boss is just bananas looking. I mean, just totally cool.
1: Kirk, we did the thing where we said we don't want to get in depth on Destiny and then we talked too long about Destiny. Oh
2: yeah. Well, okay. So I'll I'll just say that the raid I thought was cool. I don't know when I'm gonna do it again, I'll beat it sometime. The Shattered Throne, just really briefly with is... me.
1: I've never done it. You have to do it with me. Yeah,
2: exactly. That would kinda of be good. because when... 'cause it'll take you a little while to get to where you can do it and then maybe you and I can do it again and uh finally beat it when he started explaining how to do the final boss and I was like I can't right now I don't have I can't dedicate this much to my brain to memorizing like no we'll do it in a couple months which of the boss's 16 eyes you have to shoot in what order when they're open I was just like I can't do this so Shattered Throne though is really really neat and that that'll be back in three weeks that's the dungeon okay so what is a
1: dungeon in Destiny and make this quick because people are like people are listening right now being
2: like oh my god they've gone into Destiny fucking guys okay So really briefly, there's a three destiny werehole. There's a cool thing going on in the Dreaming City location. we've been discussing this week to week is how it changes each week There's an ongoing story of this curse that was unleashed because the boss of the raid unleashed it in her death. Actually now it's reset to the beginning of the loop, but the NPCs in the Dreaming City are aware that they're in a loop and so they're saying different lines of dialogue when you go to do stuff. So they'll say, this happened before, and they're confused, and they don't know what's happening. It all seems tied to Savathun. If you remember, Savathun is a hive god. Right, you're getting right, you're getting too deep. Just talk about the dungeon. No, no, no. Uh, this is all important. <laughs> this is all important. Um, it's all tied to another boss, basically, that's apparent, probably going to turn up, and that we're going to have to then fight again. So it's even a bigger yeah, narrative that makes sense. that's playing out. So what happens with the Shattered Throne is on the third week of the cycle, this dungeon opens up that is 590 power requirement, which is even higher than the final boss oh of the raid. My god. But it's, it's for three people. It's not for six people. And it's complicated, but it's not raid complicated. And it's really, really fucking cool. I mean, I so I did the first two sections. I didn't beat the second boss. But the first whole section you can do, it's not a big problem. And it's this kind of labyrinth. And you're in the Ascendant Realm, which is this dark, shadow-covered, really striking uh, looking like mysterious place and the enemies are really tough the whole thing feels very dark souls it's got this kind of an Orlando feel of a huge cathedral and like a building that was made for creatures that are much larger than you that you kind of get when you're in dark Souls and then there's some platforming and walking across really tight you know um, catwalks that feel very dark Souls-y and it just it has this totally different energy to or slightly different energy to it and it's just really beautiful looking and really cool there's a special emblem you get for doing the whole thing Solo, so it's totally soloable. Like you can do it, and it's just—it's like another. It's somewhere in between a strike and a raid, and it's really cool. Um, I—I just—I was really, really impressed by it, and it's the kind of thing that interesting. Looking back at the whisper of the worm quest, which is that timed quest to get that sniper rifle, that kind of feels similar the way that that was this actually huge striking, totally new environment and it was for three people and it was really hard. I feel like if they're gonna wind up doing more dungeons, which I hope they do and I think they will, that'll kind of get recategorized as a dungeon so we've kind of had two at this point but it was neat I mean it felt like in that same way that gambit feels like something kind of new this dungeon feels like in PVE world something just mm. like a new layer for them to explore so it was it's, it's funny in cool.
1: a normal in a normal Game like in most games, this would just be par for the course. But because it's Destiny and because it has this history of not doing <laughs> new things for so long, yeah. of always having the same exact rhythms, it's just like whoa, new stuff! Oh my god, yeah. it just feels so. It's much very core.
2: that's very true. Um Is that we're? It's like the it's benefiting from low expectations from years of just right. strikes, the raid, PvP. It's
1: like we've been we've been fed table scraps for so long, yeah. and it's like oh my god, we get to sit in the chair we're now, like a new dish. Um, what is this? So yeah, it, it does have a lot of that though. So it is very neat. So I will not be playing Destiny much this week or this weekend, um, even though my wife is out of town. So I have the place to myself to marathon video games because I will be marathoning something else. And that is a game called Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which I started last night when it came out. And I've played for a couple of hours and am already totally enamored of. I, I love it. Uh, at, like, love at first sight for this game. It's just everything I wanted. Cassandra, the main character, the female main character, is amazing. The setting is incredible. It, they made all these improvements on Origins, especially in the combat, that I really, really like. And I just want to be in ancient Greece forever. <laughs> I'm just ready to just sit and be absorbed by this game. Um, you've also played a couple hours. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I've played. I've played, a, yeah, quite a bit, actually. i so so i started playing yesterday i should say it it came out yesterday technically if you pre-ordered it or if you're like press oh, yeah. you got an early yeah, copy it's it got not the, actually out till friday no it's not
1: it's if you get the one of the, the, the billion dollar versions. yeah gold edition yeah. so um
2: which you know is so basically people who paid a lot of money or people who are in the press yes. get to play it now um yes. yeah i like it more actually than i thought i would i i I'm so I'm what I like got the boat and I'm kind of in the next area and I'm exploring I'm Mm -hmm. sort of like entering what feels like the main game but it's really good it is um, like you said it's it refines a lot of things from origins in ways I wasn't expecting Um, already the introduction the reintroduction of naval stuff from Black Flag it just (laughs) feels a lot better to do that stuff than I thought that it would. Um, yeah I don't know I want to talk about all of those things but what do you want to what, we, let's go in order let's add some structure to this or something I have a lot of yeah, thoughts so, so a couple of things
1: a couple of things that I, th- thoughts that I had um, the first thing is that uh, immediately I'm struck by how good the writing and performances are and they were really good in Assassin's Creed Origins too and just Bayek was such a good character but in this maybe it's because I like the setting more and I'm more into Greece than I was into Egypt as much as I liked Egypt um, but I, I love Greece I like grew up reading Greek mythology I'm way into this stuff um, but just having everything that just feels very um, engaging in a way that uh, usually you don't often get from a AAA Ubisoft game I'm just very hooked um, in a lots of good ways I really like the humor I really like Cassandra's interactions with the first dude Marcos who's this big goofy he's just like, Cousin Roman he's straight up
2: Cousin Roman he's in debt to people he shouldn't be in debt to he's constantly yeah, talking about that. how his schemes are going to get him out of it you're sort of uh-huh. his beleaguered enforcer i was like god this guy's so fucking yep. cousin roman Ugh. yeah if they had uh if they had cell phones he would be texting you to
1: go bowling yes, with them constantly um I, but yeah i'm just uh, struck by how cool it is and like the dialogue options are really interesting i like how they steal the witcher 3's thing of like white dialogue options are optional and then yellow advances the story mm-hmm. it feels like the witcher 3 in a lot of ways as a lot of people have pointed out um so the writing is really good. It just looks fantastic. Um, I'm really, the thing that has really um, interested me the most is all the new combat options and the fact that you have abilities, which just adds a lot to what was kind of a mediocre combat system in Origins. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I imagine that is, is impressing you too. Aren't you impressed by how good the combat is now?
2: Yeah. So in terms of the abilities, I'm not totally sure yet. Cause I just don't have that many unlocked though. It does seem like it's, it's going to add a lot of depth. So, uh, well, even just being able to kick someone is just uh, yeah makes do it a Spartan more fun. kick. I do think actually that the very, very intro of the game is super bad. Like, I think that it starts with you playing this other guy and you're just in this big, stupid fight. and it just is weird. and i it's not just another guy. It's Leonidas. No, no, I know. but I mean, it but I mean, it, you're not playing as one of the main characters. And just that I didn't like that intro and then immediately liked playing as Cassandra, because like you said, Cassandra is a really cool character. She is played, performed really well. It seems to me like this is going to be a Fem shep situation, just based on uh, everyone I know who's playing it is just talking about Cassandra and no one is talking about Alexios and where he's just always going to get short shrift, but she seems really great. I actually appreciate that she's super jacked. Um, something I noticed in, uh, uh Shadow of the Tomb Raider is that Lara Croft is like more buff now than she used to be because you know these women are doing super tough physical stuff and it makes sense but it's kind of cool that games have, have begun just being like yeah you can have a super buff female character. It's all um, cuz
1: of Nadine from Uncharted and her triceps. That's she set the bar <laughs> for she, all these characters.
2: Yeah, she 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 broke that barrier. Um so yeah, I like Cassandra a lot and I do like the writing and there's a there's a The same thing that Origins did really well, where you start doing a side quest and you learn something cool about some character. There's this one where you find a a young woman who says she's descended from Odysseus. Did you do that Mm -hmm. quest? And it's just a little whatever quest, but it's a really cool thing and it kind of ties into Cassandra's current Quest with you know her own father and discovering her own you know what that means and her relationship with her ancestry and stuff and it's it's just like good writing. Well, I also think character.
1: that she'll pop up again. The, yeah, the maybe. One, like, I mean, maybe, like maybe not. Up. But like even like if you she could doesn't do it's, a romance, may, well, yeah, you could do romance yeah. her and um, yeah. And wh- I really like that's a good uh, you you make me think of a point that I wanted to bring up, which is that I really like that it's set not just in way ancient Greece, but in Peloponnesian War Greece, which is a really cool setting for a number of reasons. One is that as I think we'll get to there's some war stuff between Athens and Sparta which is really interesting but also they have their own history legends that are way way in the past for us legends from like uh, millennia again uh, ago for us but for them it's still hundreds of years ago so like Homer writing the Odyssey that's Mm -hmm. a legend for them and Odysseus that's a legend for them and so they might know people who claim to be descendants of Odysseus which is like us meaning people who claim to be descendants of like I don't know Abraham Lincoln or mm-hmm. something where it just feels like ancient history, um, but to them it's it's modern history and also feels like ancient. It's just done really well and mm-hmm. interesting, and I'm excited to see how it branches out and where the story goes
2: and all the different directions that yeah. It takes. And so I and I'll get to combat in a second, but I and I also like a lot more than I thought I would. I mean, maybe I would have thought I would have liked this, but I like the branching dialogue options and I like just being engaged in conversations. I mean, there's yep. this sense that I get playing this that I've seen articulated all over the place that all video games are kind of becoming the same. I mean that Horizon Zero Dawn and this and The Witcher. I mean everything is just kind of this vague-ish RPG with branching dialogue and you know character creation and stuff. But But I I like that. I mean, it's cool to have control over conversations. It's cool to feel like even saying, yes, I'll help you or no, I won't to someone. Even though if you say no, you can just come back and help them later when they're trying to give you a side quest. It's just, it feels kind of cool. It makes it feel like, uh, it just makes me feel more involved in the narrative. And Mm -hmm. then knowing, Mm -hmm. you know, there's some decisions that I wasn't really sure about, you know, did the people are sick and they're they're cleansing this this town of the plague. And do you save these people because they seem sympathetic? But if I do that, is it going to cause this whole island to die or something? And yeah, so, you know, I yep. I, I, I like and then you can see the consequences and and they're mm-hmm. all tied together. I mean, it's
1: very witcher yeah. in that um, there's one section where at the beginning of the game, where if you uh, spare some bandits, then you'll have to fight them in a lot of it, and that's kind of a t- classic video game choice: you spare or kill this dude. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm excited to see how that's uh, kind of re- like how that uh, expands. It does, and it raises and-
2: some funny questions about the animus that I think I wonder. I, I know all I know is that all of the sort of animus future storyline stuff comes. Back into play L- near the end of the later, game, yeah. and I don't yeah. want to know anything about it. And I've told Heather Alexandra, who reviewed it for us, by the way. If you want to know, like a you know, just read a, a good review of this game. Uh, read Heather's review on Kotaku. It's she re- she liked it, and um, and you know, sort of gets into everything about it. But uh, but she says apparently that this stuff comes back, which I have always liked that stuff, and I love the idea that. If you introduce the idea of choice to the animus, what does that even mean for something that's supposedly coded into your DNA and already yeah, happened? Yeah, I'm sure that's going to be part of the story. I, I wonder. I mean, I guess that's so. Like, they yeah. could not address it, and I'd be fine with that if they just were like, "Whatever, you just have choices now, and it's fine."
1: I don't know because that's been the whole conceit of the animus. Yeah, I know. That you're playing what actually happened, and that's why if you die, it's not that you die; it's you were desynchronized because that or like if no, you no, kill the no, villain. Yeah. So so it's. I don't know. I, I think that'll be part of the story. That's the my guess.
2: abstract question has always existed because like, did Ezio buy that trading post or did he not buy that trading post? You know, like sure. it's always there. So I don't know. Like they don't have to explain it, but it would be kind of cool if they did. So let's yeah, talk about okay. mechanical shit. Um, I agree with you about the combat. Did not see that coming. The combat's a lot better. There are a couple of moves in particular that are handled really well. I never liked the combat in Origins. I found it to be kind of weird. Just kind of weird. I don't know. It was floaty. It didn't quite connect in the way that it should. This feels a lot Mm -hmm. more like just a straight-up kind of action RPG fighting game. So some of that is the way the animations work. The animations seem just really smooth and well done. The parry move is really good, I think. You kind of... Mm -hmm. You know, you have to hit both the shoulder buttons at the right time to do a parry, and that parry is a parryable attack is signaled with a flash. And that's mm-hmm. not exactly how it's worked in past Assassin's Creed games. Obviously, Assassin's Creed games and parrying have this whole really complicated history. They've tried a million different ways to do it. There have been games where you have to time your parry. I think actually Assassin's Creed 3 introduced this. But even then, it didn't quite work. And a lot of the games, the earlier ones, the Ezio games, you would kind of just hold block and then block every attack. And then when someone attacked, you would just press the parry button, and you'd, like, instantly kill them. So this is now very different. But it mm-hmm. is... So that I think that's really cool. The abilities seem cool. I don't have that many unlocked, but I like that you have these kind of super abilities that you're always kind of building up to, where in Origins, it was kind of just like, you had this one super ability you could do if your adrenaline bar got maxed out, and that would let you kill someone. And that was cool, but right. this just... This is a way better yeah, system. Yeah, it feels yeah. a lot better. And so... I wasn't expecting that, and so I like fighting, though I also like, um, in terms of the abilities, they kind of railroad you, or they force you to specialize more. You kind of have to, like, your armor gives you bonuses to assassination power or stealth, you know, mobility or combat strength. And it's, you know, if you're wearing kind of Spartan armor, you're like a stronger fighter. Or if you're wearing a cool kind of stealth outfit, you're a better sneaker. And I like that it's kind of... Yeah, you have to make actual decisions. Yeah. You can't just go with what... At least if you're playing on harder difficulties.
1: Right. And it warns you at the beginning, like, if you play on hard, you will have to make decisions, right. uh, optimal decisions about equipment in order to increase increase your efficiency. Actually, so,
2: yeah, and I like that you have to kind of make a character
1: build. Are you playing on hard or on normal? Normal, but I might switch to hard because I found it pretty
2: easy. Yeah, so I'm having, I'm kind of struggling right now because I'm going back and forth between the two. And here's my struggle on hard in general, I like it a lot better. I felt this way about Origins 2 like sneaking and fighting, you really don't want to get spotted. You can't really easily fight five or six people that are your level. The level scaling is mm-hmm. more aggressive too, so the enemies keep up with you, I think, more aggressively, is what Stephen Totilla said. But in the boat, on the ocean, At least right now, my boat is so not upgraded that on hard it's just ridiculous. And I totally just get ruined and can't. It's just Mm -hmm. not fun or doable. Like I just can't do what are supposed to be kind of basic side quests, you know, go blow up three ships. I tried to do it on hard and I was just getting ruined. And, you know, even if you board the ship, you get on there and then you're fighting six guys and you can't do it. So I'm kind of struggling. I wish there were a sort of nautical difficulty versus a. I guess after playing Shadow of the Tomb Raider with all those variable difficulty settings, I wish there were yeah, more different. you spoiled yeah. on
1: that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that, uh, so playing on normal, but I, I fought that first bounty hunter who chases mm. you around. Mm-hmm. He's level five and I fought him on level four and that was a really fun, like really satisfying, yeah. challenging fight to defeat. I had to dodge around and avoid all mm-hmm. his attacks and kill all the dudes he summons. And so yeah, I, I beat him one level below what I should have been and that was really cool. So maybe I'll just keep doing the, that. The frustrating um, thing
2: is that you can't change the difficulty without reloading, so like mm. you can't just change it in the middle of the game. Otherwise, I would totally just toggle back and forth. If I'm doing a ship battle, I'd go to normal, and do hard yeah. everywhere else. Because yeah, I do recommend hard for everything else. It's way more fun. You just have to use your whole bag of tricks and everything.
1: Okay, good to know. Um, yeah, I, I might do that. Um, so I want to speaking of difficulty settings. I assume you're playing on exploration mode oh, yes. versus guided <laughs> mode. So a little bit of context in case you haven't uh, seen this. Uh, guided mode, they're two before you start the game and ask you if you want to play in guided mode or exploration mode. Guided mode is what Origins did. It's putting waypoints on everything. You see big yellow markers everywhere. Yeah. Exploration mode, which is the game says, this is the way that Assassin's Creed or, uh, Odyssey is meant to be played. that Instead of giving you markers, it gives you kind of hints, and they are always very obvious hints from what we've seen so far, yeah. of like, this is going to be this next thing. They're it's italicized. on the eastern side. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's on the, the southern south side of, of Ibaka or whatever. yeah. yeah. So it, when you look in your map, you have to set a waypoint and figure out where to go on your own, um, which I found really cool and interesting and a really good way to play the game and hopefully it gets more challenging as you go. But every time you get close to your waypoint, you still get that friggin', uh message saying you have to summon your bird and use them to find everything
2: and it doesn't go away. I have exciting news for you that I just saw on the Assassin's Creed subreddit a couple hours ago. If you turn may- off um, the tips like if you turn off the tips and whatever advice setting in the uh, in one of the in one of the options for the game, it makes that go uh-huh. away. So it turns really? away all of the tips and Wait, tutorials. Wait, hold on. But Steven's
1: article about the differences between Odyssey and Origins on Kotaku the other day, it said that so, yeah, the developers told him that you can't let me
2: explain the full thing. So, what the okay. developers meant by that was that you can't completely make that go away. You, there is no, there is no. It's not send you, What's it? Icaros. There is no. Icaros does not spot things for you. Setting the, the system is still there, but it removes just that tooltip of. Press the button to summon your bird to see it. So apparently, I think there's just a vibration and it's still there. So if you summon the bird, it'll still spot the thing for you. But it doesn't Uh give you that annoying pop up, which I'm leaving those on for now just because there's enough new systems in this game that I want it to kind of explain to me what to do. But I can definitely see turning that off being. Well, so the thing I want is that to
1: appear and then disappear. Like I want one prompt that says, oh, okay, my way, like I know that I'm in the area now. And then I want it to go away because I don't necessarily. Always
2: want to use him to figure out right. where everything. So now is. I think you'll just have to. I mean, it's if your controller will vibrate and it'll kind of tell you that way. I guess. Interesting. I okay, I'm gonna play with that yeah, and yeah. get back to you.
1: So yeah, we 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 should move on because we're very, both very early into this. Wait, game one other thing before we move on. One other thing that okay. I want to yeah. that
2: I want to point out that I I think some listeners might not know about that I didn't know about until I read Steven's comparison article between Origins and Odyssey. That's really cool. Uh-huh. There's an entire fucking nemesis system in this game <laughs> that like I didn't know was in this game. So so the nemesis system from Shadow of War and Shadow of Mordor is in this game. Basically, there's this mercenaries system. Well, it's a little different because they don't come back to life when you kill them. I'm going to explain it. So it, um, I mean, it's but it in a lot of ways is very similar. So there are and these, they don't like. I got killed by one and he didn't. I expected him to like get more powerful, but he didn't. <laughs> right? But so there are these mercenaries that you come across. And you, of course, are also a mercenary. So it's already different in that you're on the spectrum in this system. Like, you're placed alongside these other like mercenaries. And um, each one has kind of a different name. And they all have different traits. So they have strengths and weaknesses. Maybe they're weak to ranged attacks and strong against fire or something. And you'll get uh, – they they factor into the game, I think, in various – in all kinds of different ways, you know. So far, I've only had them. They'll be one will be sort of dispatched after me if I, you know, steal too much stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, but they have all kinds of different purposes, and you can go hunt them down yourself, and that makes you more no- more notorious. And um, there's a whole quest attached. Yeah, there's a whole thing attached to it, which is sort of similar to the falakis in um, Origins. It's just like a much more fleshed out and I think better system. I like the falakis. I did that whole quest. I thought it was pretty cool. But um, this is, you know, so you go into the menu and you see this hierarchy of mercenaries and the ones you haven't met are sort of in shadow, just like, it looks exactly like in Shadow of Mordor. And then, yeah, Mm -hmm. like you said, it is different. Like if you get killed by one, there isn't this sort of, your death isn't built into the fiction and they don't. They don't become more powerful and less powerful, but they do turn up and kind of ruin your day all the time. That one guy who follows you around the first island is a nightmare while you're still level two, and he's level five. And he kept I would be in the middle of a side quest, and then that guy would just come walking, and I'd be like, "Fuck, I have to go hide <laughs> for a while." Which I just sort this of really
1: proves life. your point that all AAA video games are the same.
2: Yeah, I mean it, it really is. It's one more system from another you game. You should write an
1: article that's like a checklist for AAA open world games <laughs> and it's like our AAA games and it's like open world yeah, skill tech, trees nemesis uh, system dialogue options yeah. uh, side quests that are have
2: their own the, what's the one that Mark Brown the Pists? game makers tool guys pointed this out which has been pointed out before but which is that every single game now has three skill trees that have n- names like yeah. warrior hunting know, warrior. Hunter, <laughs> or whatever well it's always one is
1: combat one is like stealthish stuff or mm-hmm. like like dexterity based stuff it's always like like if you think of them as D D stats it's always like strength dexterity and then like I guess wisdom or like or gadgets sometimes card, it's sort of the yeah, gadget tree like in,
2: in the witcher yeah. or in origins yeah. it was that way um
1: yes all video games are exactly the same uh because they are all hundred million dollar productions and they need to sell and if they don't sell they're all fucked and so they can't take any risks and they have to be conservative <laughs> and just make the same decisions that they know work uh, that's video games for you that's triple a game development for you on that note why don't we take a break and then we will talk about the news of the week <laughs>
0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and
1: over, which helps her improve her skills.
0: The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, I'm Melissa Kirsch, editor-in-chief of Lifehacker. And I'm Alice Bradley, Lifehacker's deputy editor.
1: And we're the hosts of Lifehacker's podcast, The Upgrade. On The Upgrade, we help you improve your life one week at a time. We talk to guests like former hacker Hector
0: Monsegur about online security.
2: You need to be aware of how you can be attacked. You need to be aware of what's your weakness.
0: And Alan Alda on how to communicate more effectively.
2: And in order to achieve that, we start with teaching exercises derived from improvisation.
1: And sex therapist Steven Snyder about how to have great sex in a long term relationship.
2: What really works under those circumstances is if you enjoy the other person selfishly.
0: Hey, your life, it's terrible.
1: We can help. (laughs) Find the upgrade wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. So Kirk, we have been experimenting a little bit and you and Maddie experimented a little bit with news and how we want to do the news segment and we're still going to be playing around um, and seeing what works. We got a lot of feedback that people definitely want some sort of a news segment so we're going to keep playing with different things and I don't know, we'll figure it out. Keep emailing us at splitscreenecotalker.com or tweeting at us with your feedback and, and we, we always appreciate just hearing from everybody uh, on their thoughts on the structure of the show. So with that in mind... Let's talk about some news that happened over the past week. First and foremost, Harry Potter. Kirk, <laughs> you and I are both big Harry Potter fans, correct?
2: Yes, correct. We have our big Buckbeak theory, remember? I feel like yeah, that, was, our a, Buck that Buck was a watershed yeah. moment for Kotaku, our, our theory about it was Commander.
1: Um, although I think, yeah, I, I guess it hasn't really been disproven, mm-hmm. but it certainly was not uh, supported we'll by still the movie. We'll see. We'll the see. Movie, I'm holding the out the for the, yeah, the new one comes out soon. Maybe that'll that'll be the big twist of mm-hmm. Fantastic Beasts 2. Um, so, Harry Potter uh, has had a long history in video games. There have been a lot of Harry Potter video games. Recently, there have not. There hasn't really been a proper Harry Potter video game since, like, the PS2 era. Um, but that's going to change soon because uh, on Tuesday, there was a leaked footage from a Redditor <laughs> who said that uh, they were approached in a mall and asked to come watch footage of this game and, like, do a, a mini focus test. Um, and so they snuck footage of the game with their phone and, and shot it. How and, does that work? Just uh, someone
2: comes up to you in the mall and is like, hey, you want to you come see a video game? Yeah, I guess so...
1: The way that I envision it is publisher is doing these tests, um, hires a third party marketing firm. That marketing firm just has tentacles, like branches all around the country. Just have, like unmarked and we'll vans Just survey random malls. people. Yeah. yeah. And they just pay people to go survey other people. And um, the other option here, by the way, is that this was an intentional leak by the developer and maybe they haven't been officially greenlit yet and they wanted to survey mm. uh, uh, interest, public interest, and get
2: that to. Is like Dry how the uh, this is like how the white
1: house currently operates <laughs> yes very very possible yeah someone I was talking to uh, uh, suggested that theory and I was like hmm that's some Game of Thrones shit right there um, but yeah so Harry Potter footage leaked um, at first people thought it was Rocksteady but I can assure you that it is not uh, I have a pretty good idea of what Rocksteady is working on and it's superhero game um, that is not Harry Potter um, and Harry Potter is uh, the, the theory that people are having right now that I believe is true just based on the, the buzz that I've heard, is that it's made by Avalanche Software. Not to be confused with Avalanche Studios. Yes, there are two different companies and games called Avalanche. Look, there are only it's so many names, okay? There's just, there aren't that many names. In fairness, yeah, there are only so many games. So Someone should go with split screen. Split screen <laughs> studios. Um, so, <laughs> these are the guys who made Disney Infinity for a while under Disney. Disney shut them down in 2016. Then Warner Brothers kind of revived them, bought them to make the Cars 3 game that came out a little while ago, and now we believe that they're working on this Um, for a number of reasons. First and foremost, because they had job listings that were looking for writers who knew how to write British dialogue and grammar. Um it, it 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 adds up it makes sense. Um so from the the buzz that we're hearing this is very early on in production might be a next gen game. Uh maybe like 2020 something like that. Um I thought the footage looked really cool. I got really excited about it. You were a little more
2: tempered, correct? Yeah, I didn't think it looked that cool. <laughs> I don't know. Like I feel <laughs> like a buzzkill, I guess, but it didn't excite me very much. I like so I, I do like Harry Potter. I I guess I'd love a good Harry Potter video game. It seems like That world and that fiction would lend itself to the trappings of what we expect from a video game. But -hmm. that was, then again, that was just kind of what I felt like I was looking at. Oh, yeah, okay, it's a Harry Potter video game, all right. It just, you know, it didn't look particularly groundbreaking or amazing. It was just Harry Potter stuff, and the Harry Potter music plays, and that's cool. But it it, it looked kind of like the other Harry Potter video games. I didn't see why anyone was excited. Like, if that had been a trailer instead of a leak, I don't know... I don't know that people would have been as excited. So, okay, so a couple of things. First of all, for people who
1: haven't watched the footage, and you can go watch it, uh, there's a mirror link on Kotaku, even though it was pulled from YouTube. Um, so it kind of flashes between a bunch of different clips, there's no real long period of gameplay. It's just two second clips, uh, segments of a bunch of different stuff. So you see like a dude doing alchemy in a in a classroom, and then another dude walking in the garden, and then people in the Forbidden Forest, and all sorts of random stuff. And I think part of it is that people like me are just filling in the blanks in our head and just imagining sure. playing as this. Um, the according to the dude who leaked it, uh, it's going to you create your own character, and you're like this fifth year student who is a Transfer student to Hogwarts, so it's, and it's that way before Harry Potter time. Um, so, yeah, so people like me, I'm just like envisioning this like bully like ha- uh, combination like Harry Potter game very he- heavily inspired by bully and you play in the the classroom and you have to make cool decisions and it's got some persona in there and maybe there's social <laughs> links and I'm just envisioning that. And here's the thing. Here's here's the big case for this game. And obviously we have not seen it. We know it, we don't know anything about it, uh-huh. but here's why I'm excited. So, in the PS2 era, uh, licensed games were crappy there were a ton of licensed games most of them were not very good there were a lot of movie tie-ins there were a lot of random franchise tie-ins there was a lot of companies I mean there've been a lot of bad licensed Harry Potter video games. games yes yes exactly um since uh the beginning of this generation that has not happened anymore companies do not make bad licensed games anymore uh they're very rare you don't see them very often the companies that were uh that kind of made their n- names on those games the midways and the thqs of the world do not exist anymore because that was not a lucrative or viable business model and these days if you're doing a licensed property and we see this with spider-man we see this with lord of the rings and shadow of war what shadow i mean of war, the people Mortar, who did this first um, were rock city with arkham asylum i mean that was the yeah, game. yeah yeah exactly i was getting there i okay. was getting there um these companies are doing it right and they're putting a lot of care and really good treatment and making real, really good video games out of licensed properties. Um, So I can see, like, uh, everyone assumes that if there's a new Harry Potter open world AAA RPG game, it's not going to be another licensed cash-in. It's going to be something along the lines of Shadow of Mordor, where this company comes in and is like, hey, we're not doing just another fucking movie tie-in. We're treating this right with the respect it deserves. And so that's why I think that that a lot of people saw a lot of really cool potential with that trailer. Like, the trailer itself is just like, whatever, it's just a bunch of random scenes. It's not showing you anything concrete, probably because it was never meant to see the light of day. But you fill in the blanks and you imagine, like, by today's standard, like we said before, all AAA video games are the same. So imagine a Harry Potter (laughs) game that's, like, hitting all those checklists. I'm really excited
2: about that, especially if they take from Bully, and I'm sure they will yeah I hope it's good. I mean, like like you said, it's a trailer i nothing I saw in that trailer like jumped out at me as being particularly new was a thing. I just it was
1: like okay all let me the put it another Harry, way I'm Harry not potter excited stuff, for I, the trailer I almost hesitate I'm ex- th- okay, go ahead yeah let, let me put it another way I'm not excited for the trailer I'm of for the idea of Harry Potter being of a potter being revived a a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of a little a really good Harry a game sure. that's what I want yeah I, I want would little bit of a little
2: bit of a i bit of a little bit seen a trailer, bit of a little bit of a little bit a Harry Potter video a to me so
1: Okay, fair enough. Um, let's move on. There's lots more news to talk about. Um, Google's streaming service, finally official, Project Yeti, which I reported on a while back um, and was uh, had, had been rumored. Um, it is now official in the most low-key Google way possible. <laughs> they were just like, oh yeah, Project Stream. Um, I love and that it's called, called Project Google Stream. Has. I'm sure it's their temporary name for it. And mm-hmm. I'm sure they'll give it a proper name in the future, but still, it, it's them saying, hey... Uh, starting Friday, uh, people who get into this test will be able to play Assassin's Creed Odyssey in Google Chrome. And the the big red flag is that they're looking for people with a 25 megabit per second <laughs> internet connection or higher. Um, so that itself just says like what they're what the challenge the big challenge that they have ahead of them. Um, but still, it's it's cool to see them finally talking about it, and uh, I'm excited to see the next phases of Google's big gaming. Play plan because they have a lot of big ambitious plans for gaming, um, including as I reported back in June, this is kind of the first prong. They also are working on a platform or a console of some sort. Um, not really clear on whether it's a like heavy next-gen super high-spec console or something more like a Chromecast that supports Project Dream. I think it's more like the latter. Um, and they're also looking to buy and invest in development uh, of actual games themselves. So I'm very interested to see what happens from this? What do
2: you think? Are you going to stream games in your Google Chrome tabs? No, I mean I'd be interested if it works, but I'm not really the target audience. Yeah, I don't know. I, we'll see. It seems like all of the non-gaming tech giants still haven't quite figured this out, or at least Amazon sure didn't. So mm. maybe Google will. Who knows? Yeah, Amazon's still trying. They're still mm-hmm.
1: hoping to ship games. I think they they're aiming for next year for. It's still kind of goes to show game. that you
2: you can't just throw money at this. Like it requires something. Something more than just money, apparently.
1: Yeah, I mean, it requires. I think it's all about leadership at the top and just like being willing to commit to gaming and just go all in, as opposed to just being like, "Oh yeah, we're gonna do this," and yeah, throw some money I, at it. I guess and, it's
2: just that there's an artistic component to video games that there isn't really with you know a maps application or something like mm-hmm. you. It's it's like becoming a music distributor or something on on that in that way that none of these companies necessarily do like they or maybe they sell the thing but they don't necessarily make the thing and you know amazon figured that out amazon makes good movies and makes good tv shows now so it's possible yeah. like they that they could figure out how to make good games too it just seems like maybe the people making decisions that some of those companies don't yet fully understand who they need to make the things that will that people will want to play
1: yeah, something people don't think about a lot or talk about a lot is team chemistry and the band comparison is apt there. And I think that if you look at uh, some of the most successful studios, you'll see a lot of people who have been working together for a long time yeah. and know each other's ticks and know what each other like. And um, you see a lot of successful studios, like one that immediately comes to mind is uh, Yacht Club Games, the people who made Shovel Knight and they were really successful right out of the gate because they all came from working together another company and we're just like hey we want to make games together and it was very very band like um i think team chemistry is something that money cannot create that's something you can only create with a lot of time and a lot of good people just like who like and respect and and want to work with each other and uh i think that that definitely has an impact that Hmm. there's no tangible way to measure um Let's talk about some more news. Um, so this is a crazy story. Over the weekend, uh, the Dallas Morning News reported that Gearbox CEO Randy Pitchford uh, had hired a um, an assistant named Jonathan Wright Martin, and he has disappeared. And the Pitchfords say that he stole <laughs> three million dollars worth of property from them while working as their assistant. And this is wild. He apparently... uh, Go read the Dallas Morning News story because it's really wild. But basically, he was, according to Pitchford, um, Martin was like forging checks and making ATM withdrawals and stealing on a credit card and donating money to uh, charities and chartering a private jet and doing all this stuff with the finances of a coffee shop that Randy Pitchford's wife owns. Um, so just a really wild story. I, I just, it's, it's one of those stories that I think when, when all the, like, when the full details come out, maybe in like a magazine story or something like that, or maybe even a Kotaku feature, um, it'll be one of those like too good to be real, like crime, crazy stories that is immediately optioned for a
2: movie and it's just super fascinating. Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't have a ton of thoughts on this one other than that, that is a lot of money to steal and it sounds like it was a whole involved, elaborate rackets. So I'm glad they yeah, caught the man. guy and figured it out. I hope they figure out how to get their money back or at least some of it.
1: Yeah, geez. Yeah, I, I don't think you can in that circumstance. Like, what do you even do if he doesn't have it? How do you even do it? Um, another wild story from over the weekend, uh, or Friday, actually. So Valve, as we know, Valve is actually releasing a video game soon. It's not the video game that anyone wanted, but still, Valve is releasing a card <laughs> some, game. Some people might want it. Sure. Um, Valve is releasing a card game called Artifact, and I guess some people want it. And uh, over on Friday, they announced a card. Uh, I guess they've been kind of doing a trickle of card announcements on their Twitter feed. Um, They announced Mm -hmm. this card called. Crack the whip, and I'm going to read you the the description for Crack the whip. It says, modify a black hero with, after you play a black card, give this hero and its allied neighbors plus two attack this round. And obviously when they talk about black hero, they're talking about the color in the game, like the, the mana color, Magic the Gathering is the same sort of thing, um, but somehow nobody thought about the implications about of naming a card crack the whip and talking about modifying a black hero like somehow nobody somehow this just got through like i'm i was baffled when i saw
2: that that nobody yeah. looked at that and was like what i would say that I mean, I would say that this is an example of why diversity is important. And it is, in a way. Like, it's important to have people who aren't just white people who would see something like that and immediately say, wait, that's fucked up. But also, anyone should look at that and say, yeah, wait, that's, that's fucked what's up. Crazy. I would like, think by don't... now. So yeah. maybe it's an argument for just, like, diversity in life and just people being aware of that kind of thing because come on yeah I, yeah I, i'm just I, baffled yeah. like th- that i wonder if it's just they were tired and like grinding out a bunch of cards or like and two people saw it and neither of those people thought of it and you know clearly they immediately realized oh fuck and they're changing it so i guess yeah that's so good, so that's yeah. the
1: second part of the story is then they they announced in in the most valve way possible they a few hours later they tweeted we are changing the name of Crack the Whip to Coordinated Assault. Or, sorry, we changed the name of Crack the Whip to Coordinated Assault. And that was the full tweet. That's all they said. They don't say, sorry, valid. they didn't say. Yeah, it's very valve. It's not like acknowledging a mistake. It's just, we changed it. Um, and, yeah, now now it looks a little bit different. But, yeah, I'm just baffled at how, like, yeah, and obviously a lot of these companies need to be more diverse, and I think a person of color might look at that and be more inclined to be like, holy shit, what the fuck? But I feel like anyone <laughs> should have had that reaction. Yeah. Um, one more news story for the week. Uh, Sony has announced that there will not be a PlayStation experience this year. Um, nothing too deep to talk about here other than the fact that there's no PlayStation experience this year, which is... Um, kind of a a big shift for them. They've been doing it for six or seven years now and having a big conference where they announce stuff, but I'm guessing that because they don't have a lot more to talk about other than the games that we know are coming, um, and they just want to save a couple, the the few remaining announcements they have for this life cycle. uh, I think they're saving for other events. They usually do like a Paris Games Week conference, and then obviously E3 of next year they'll have to save some stuff for. Um, I think some people have taken this as a sign that the PlayStation 5 is coming next year and they're they're holding off so they can like do some PlayStation meeting uh, in January or February or something like that. I do not think that's the case. Um, I talked to a lot of game developers about this sort of stuff and the general belief uh, that I've heard is that Next Gen is still pretty far off like 2020. Um, so yeah, I don't really see that as a sign. What about you? It's do you funny think we're getting Next
2: Gen consoles next year? Now no, because you said that and even more <laughs> than I do. Um I, it is funny that twenty twenty is not actually that far off. It's like actually pretty soon. <laughs> like it's yep. the year after next and this year's almost over, so it's it's actually not even that far away. So
1: Yeah. Um, I mean think yeah, about it. I think it's that, already been a long time since the Playstation five and Xbox One came out or Playstation four I, mm-hmm. and Xbox One came out.
2: Yeah, it's it's weird. It's weird that it's been five years. It's been very long, and yeah, and it
1: feels like shorter. It feels like they're new still to me, at least.
2: Yeah, but it feels like to me, it feels like we're at that sweet spot now. Like games like Spider Man feel like they're you know really, or uh, these Assassin's Creed games we're playing too. They feel like they're really in that. Okay, everyone really knows how to get the most out of these consoles and make them. You know, just really sing. And that's always a nice... I like this time, this place, so I'm, I'm fine with it. But yeah, I think that tracks. They've got... We know they've got The Last of Us 2, Days Gone... You know, they're and right, like Close maybe they have Tsushima. one big announcement to make, but they want to save that for E three, so it makes sense to me. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think they still have um, I, at least a couple of other PS four things, maybe nothing as big as these other first party games. Because if you think about like their first party uh, studios, a lot of yeah. them have moved on. So like uh, Sony Santa Monica is most likely working on God of War two for the PlayStation right. five. Um, the big question that I have, and I'm I'm very fascinated to see whether uh, companies go cross-gen for this coming generation and whether they repeat the mistake that they made last time where they were hampering their games by forcing developers to release them also on ps3 and xbox 360 and that Mm -hmm. wound up not only hurting developers by forcing them to kind of like restrain themselves and release on multiple platforms at once but also uh those games didn't sell like i heard when I was reporting for my book on Dragon Age Inquisition, um, I believe off the top of my head, I believe it was like they sold ninety percent of copies on current gen and PC and like ten percent or something like that. It was either ten or twenty percent on PS three and Xbox 360, sixty and they were like, in retrospect we would definitely not have gone cross gen. Mm. So I wonder if people will make the same mistakes.
2: Well we're in this kind of different slightly different world now where there's the ps4 pro and the xbox one x and Mm. so you know the xbox one x is still a pretty friggin mighty console that i don't think is really getting used to the to the utmost of its performance ps4 pro feels a little more like it's it's kind of at least getting worked by some of these current games but uh yeah if you buy one of those now Xbox One X isn't that old, and then suddenly yeah. they're like, "Oh yeah, surprise! Xbox Two, uh, no, no games. You know, you're gonna have well, to get this if you okay. want to play the new games." That so yeah,
1: so that's so my thought is that my my kind of educated speculation, and we've talked about this before, but I'll just repeat the the same thing I said a few months ago. Um, my thought is that with Sony, we'll see a proper generational leap where you get a PlayStation Five. There's some games that only run on PlayStation Five, and that's the end of it. And it also plays PS4 games if you want, but there's some games that are only PS5. And then with the Xbox, I think they'll go for more of the iPhone model, where it's now you get an Xbox 2 or whatever it is, and we have games that run really well on Xbox 2, and they'll also run on Xbox One X, but they won't run on Xbox One. So, like, Xbox One is the... Xbox One X is the new baseline. Mm-hmm. And then, two years later, they release a new Xbox, and suddenly Xbox One X is no longer the new baseline. Xbox Two is the new... long. New baseline, and so now you can get games that'll run on Xbox Two and Xbox
2: Two X, and then it keeps going from there where it's an iterative. Yeah, that tracks with the general approach to backward compatibility that they've taken too. Like where Mm -hmm. there's this just sense that now if you have an Xbox, you can play every Xbox game from forever. Basically, I know there's some that don't work, but. And that's nice. I think so. I'd wish Sony would do that instead. Mm-hmm. It would be really shitty. I this would actually surprise me if the PS5 didn't play PS4 games It seems, I'm, I'm pretty confident yeah, it will. they're not going to yeah. do that again I don't think I mean no, Sony does some dumb shit well, but I don't part think of it was the that. whole
1: cell architecture thing and it was just technically yeah, difficult for yeah, them to make that happen yeah. so yeah no they're not going to do that again that would be unfathomably stupid and they have this huge library of incredible games now And I mean uh, these, these
2: companies occasionally do unfathomably stupid things but I
1: agree that's with you. true it's probably not going to happen um, alright That's it for the news. Um, Why don't we take another break and then we will spoil Spider-Man. Can't wait. And we are back to spoil the hell out of the adventures of Peter Parker. Um, This is your warning. We are going to spoil the new game. We are going to talk about the whole story. Uh, Turn back now if you do not want to be spoiled. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, Aunt May dies, Uh, uh, Miles Morales becomes Spider-Man, Doc Ock is the main villain, Sinister Six, what else, what else is there to spoil? Uh, Oh yeah, Norman isn't, or Harry isn't really in Europe, Um, Norman is going to become the Green Goblin next game. Good twist, by the way, Harry, not being in Europe. I enjoyed that. Oh,
2: I saw that one coming, but uh, I guess that was an okay twist.
1: Yeah, maybe it's because I didn't read the comics. Uh, But I I thought the story was full of surprises and interesting. Anyway, you have finally finished Spider-Man. I finished Spider-Man a while ago. I loved it. It might be my favorite game movie here. Kirk, did you love it as much as I did?
2: I don't know, because I I can't put a number on how much you loved it. I liked it a lot. I thought it was good. 17 and a half. (laughs) 17 and a half just out of whatever. Uh, Out of five. I I thought it was really good. 17 and a half divided by
1: five is my number.
2: Okay, got it. Um, I thought it was good. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was well made. I thought the story was really well performed. Kind of better performed than it was written at times. Um, Or like in terms of just some aspects of the characters um, that I guess we can get into in a minute. Uh, They've got a really good baseline here to build on. And I think as much as I've been constantly comparing these games with Arkham games because they are such an obvious sort of they're so inspired by those and they carry on and then do things differently in some ways so that it just makes me want to compare them naturally. It's also, you know, comparing them to Arkham games is comparing a series that had years and years and three entries to really mature into Arkham Knight just mechanically and, you know, in terms of design. And, you know, this is the first entry Mm -hmm. where... Insomniac is benefiting from all the work that Rock City did on those three games. So they are, it's not like you're comparing this to Arkham Asylum exactly, but they are kind of different in that way. Yeah. So I have a lot of comparisons there and a lot of thoughts that I think are interesting and instructive and some ways that I do think the Arkham games are still like greatly outperforming Spider-Man, but then uh, I really like Spider-Man overall. So
1: by the way, a side note, if you think about how rare it is for a new IP to just hit the mark right out of the gate, or, that's kind of mixing metaphors for, yeah. for uh, a new IP to hit, get number do better, one, do better Jason, to, to win the race right out of the gate. If okay. you think, if you think of how rare that is, um, between horizon zero dawn and now a spider-man man it's that's well i mean incredible. you know
2: you know what other game did that is batman arkham asylum i mean that game oh, that's true yeah landed that's and just was amazing like and yep. no one could believe it, it i remember mm-hmm. the, even the lead-up to that game thinking this isn't gonna be good and then it was fucking awesome and being like whoa i mean a lot of people still say that's the best one in that series yep so the a thing that i really like let's talk about the story maybe first yeah um, I love the characters, the good guys in this, in uh-huh. particular, a lot. I think Yuri Lowenthal deserves all the plaudits in the Oscars. world for his performance as Peter Parker. Game I Lords. just think he's such a, as an actor, he has been in the scene forever. He's been in a million games. He's been in every game you've played, like every JRPG you've ever played, He's he's been in it. He was the Prince of Persia. He was He's just in so many different things, and he's one of those... voice actors who's just been doing this forever but there hasn't ever been a game for him to just really get to show the range and the emotions and the relatability that he got to as Peter and I think he just did an amazing job um, I think that, you know, I, I wrote a post about that text message scene. I think it's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of the writing and the way he's written and then the way he plays the part that's just super relatable. And he's just this very relatable character. We, I talked about this when we talked about the game before, but how funny it is that this weirdo superhero with these weird spider abilities somehow is still the most relatable superhero, but he is. <laughs> and I thought he was great. And I thought that he did a great job, um, with Like their, their relationship with MJ was really good. Um, that's, actually... that's
1: my favorite part is their relationship is just my, my yeah, I, the text message you seen seen that you wrote about is just my, my overall highlight of the game. And yeah, that's what made me enjoy it the most is just the tension between the two of them and uh,
2: just the, the, it just felt very real and true. Um, fun fact that I didn't know until I looked up the IMDb of this game is that Laura Bailey actually played MJ, and she was Nadine in uh, Un- Uncharted: Lost Legacy. Ah, and, uh, Uncharted and this 4.
1: triceps herself.
2: Yeah, so she's actually playing a totally different character in this, but she's also in this, which I thought was really cool. And then that uh-huh. Yuri Lowenthal's wife um, plays uh, Yuri, the cop who is named Yuri. Um, I thought that that was that was really so that's annoying. incredibly confusing. Yes, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure they had they had. Uh, Quite a bit of fun with that. Yeah. Um, um, So, so.
1: Yeah, you might remember that a month ago when we were first talking about this, I was like, yeah, MJ and Peter's relationship is by far the highest, uh, highlight of the of the game. I wasn't so sold by Miles. I
2: thought he was just fine, but he was just too much of a he mirror gets that one Parker scene. for me. The scene where Peter shows him how to fight is a really wonderful mm-hmm. scene. And, and just, he punches his him, acting yeah. in that where he's like, you're Spider-Man. You're yeah. the amazing Spider-Man. You're the incredible... Like that, he really is amazing. The actor who played him, who actually is this the guy, his name is, wait, let me look him up. He played the... Sam in The Last of Us, the boy mm. uh, in The Last of Us. His name is Wait. Let me find him. Najee Jeter and Tara Platt. Also, she played Yuri. So that's that's um, Yuri Lowenthal's wife. Is her name mm-hmm. Tara Platt? So all these actors, it's a whole it's a whole like a constellation of actors who are in everything. So um, you mentioned the heroes, but I actually like the villains a lot too, especially
1: um, Otto Octavius. And yeah. so at first I was like, at first when when you're first introduced to the fact that Peter works in his lab, I was like, oh. Okay okay, great. They're setting us up to have Doc Ock be the main villain, whatever. Um, But then as the game went on and it became this tragedy of like you actually connecting the wires and creating this neural interface for Doc Ock and turning him into Doc Ock yourself. um, I thought it was this really cool, well handled, ironic tragedy that I was really into by the end. And just hearing Doc Ock talk about his uh, physical ailments and his uh, just the his his desire to escape the frailty of his body. I was way into that, and him as a villain was it was very tragic. I thought.
2: So yeah, I so in terms of Peter and MJ, and actually in terms of Doc Ock, I think that the execution was better for me than the conception sometimes like the idea of the superhero girlfriend who wants to be taken seriously as a contributing member of the team and of the superhero who realizes that he's better with the non-super people helping him I mean these are beats that have been covered in a million things and while they did it really well and it's a cool thing to do with the previously damsel and distressed you know girlfriend to make her an active part of the story it's still kind of just the first next step and I'd I'm ready for them to, like, do even more ambitious and interesting things with those characters. But, like you said, like, they did it really well. The thing I liked about the Otto story, which didn't, like, do that much for me, actually. I mean, it it was fine, I guess. But I really liked how at the very beginning of the game... The first thing you do is you come in and Otto is having this experiment go wrong and you think, oh, we're going to see Doc Ock get created right now. And then instead he's like, oh, never mind, I'm fine. And then you spend most of the rest of the game with him not being Doc Ock and kind of watching him more slowly become him, which I think was a smart move clearly a very deliberate one, that they wanted to have at least one villain become a villain where every other villain had already become a villain, you know, and Mm -hmm. they were really established. I think in general for me, and here's an Arkham comparison, I think that the villains in... The Arkham games are so much more interesting than the villains in this game. I just think, like, every one of... Like, I mean, it's not almost not fair because Batman just has better villains than any superhero, yeah, I I mean, think. yeah, you have to... So, but, so, in what way? Yeah, elaborate. Well, way. so, yeah, they're, they're working with what they're working with. But I still think that the Joker-Batman relationship throughout the three of those games, and in particular in Arkham Knight, and the way that that's explored and the way that it allows Batman... Like, it creates this nightmare version of Batman is in one way, and only in one way, uh, more appealing to me. And that's just in that it's this really high-concept, kind of sturm-and-drang, almost operatic view of, like, psychosis and a person's personality and all this really high-concept shit. And they, and they execute it in this incredibly ambitious way that, that I really like, even while something we've talked about before the the person the human Factors in Spider-Man are really great when Peter is sort of pleading with Otto to, to come back to himself and he's clearly he's like anguished over the guilt he feels. That to me is really compelling because Yuri Lowenthal's performance is so good and it's so well written, even though the actual high concept of it is way less interesting than you know, just because it's not as high it's much lower concept It's just oh you: Right guy I mean, by
1: definition, guy. Spider-Man is a grounded superhero, and he's by definition going to be low concept as opposed yeah. to Batman, who is this billionaire. Uh, like fucked up psychopath who's battling his own inner demons and
2: right. Uh, sometimes th- literally I think that that stuff is interesting. And then also just the Riddler. So okay. So one thing that I really didn't care for in the Spider-Man game were the puzzles and any of the stuff that wasn't either swinging around or like combat. The puzzles and the stealth both just didn't do much for me. Having played the shit out of all the Arkham games and seen mm-hmm. how much they. But could it's do part with of that. the
1: video game checklist
2: is like diverse mechanics, so you have something else to do, right? Than and like swing so, and fight. Right, and you mentioned how Peter kind of helps Doc Ock build the thing, but even so, you're yeah. just doing a fucking pipe dream minigame. I mean, every time I was doing that, I just kind of was like, this is just a dumb diversion to keep me... You can't skip them. Yeah, so compared to the Riddler trophies, and the Riddler is just a perfect video game villain, right? I mean, is there a better video game villain than a guy who leaves puzzles all around the place for you to no, solve and is, and is obsessed with making you solve puzzles? I mean, no, he's perfect for video game. So it's not even really fair, but... Um, You know, there's a guy like that, the mysterious guy leaving challenges around for Spider-Man, but those just aren't as cool. I mean, the Riddler... Puzzles in the Arkham games are amazing. Some of them, like they're like Zelda level, incredible puzzles built into the environment, and all, and each one is unique and distinct. And they're just they require all kinds of different stuff. One thing I really like that the Arkham games didn't do that I think the Spider-Man games could start to do is they make some of the puzzles about finding clues about like lore from past stories. So you know you'll find the cane owned by the guy who started Arkham Asylum or whatever, and I, I like that a lot. And they they could have leaned into that a little bit more than they did in Spider-Man, which, and I would imagine they will in the future. But, um, so there isn't, it's its missing some of that where the other villains, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Scorpion, like whatever, Scorpion, Vulture, like who gives a shit, it's some old guy in like wings, like whatever. He's kind of, you know, he's just not as cool as Scarecrow or, well, or whatever. Well, it's funny
1: you say that because Vulture is so good in Spider-Man Homecoming.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, th- that was for, you know, sort of similar, It's some sort of similar, uh, reasons like the way that they wrote the character and the way they gave him a good right. backstory. To, so, to I'm saying my Batman. point is that they can make any of these villains into really compelling Right. But characters. I guess in order to make them cool, they can only do it by making the backstory interesting and making the character interesting. The villain archetype itself isn't it. actually that cool and doesn't give you that much to work with. Where Batman just is working with villains who tend to just be more interesting and kind of force different kinds well, of, you know, so actually,
1: so Spider Man's. And again, this is spoken as a movie person, not a comic person. But Spider-Man's most interesting villain, I think, is Venom. And they're saving him, clearly, for the next game. Um, Because at the end of the game, you see this little flash of the symbiote in in Harry's tank. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Mm. That little blur. Uh, that's maybe, hitting, maybe. The, hitting the hitting edge maybe. of it. Oh yeah, I, I definitely think I mean, there's a reason that that suit isn't in the game, and it's very it's very clearly being set up for like the symbiote to make some
2: sort of appearance. And and so I think Venom will definitely be in. The yeah, next I mean one. I think it's possible. I don't think it's very clear. I think it's possible, but I think that to tease Green Goblin and Venom at the same time is kind of weird. So it could just be he's Green Goblin and he's a weird version of Green Goblin. I don't think so. I think they're both going to be in the next game,
1: and they're both gonna and those are both two iconic Spider-Man villains who we haven't seen yet in this game. So, so, and those are two of the better Spider-Man villains, I would say, just based on my own limited experience. Um, But yeah, uh, Batman does have that really interesting cast of villains around him. And yeah, Spider-Man didn't give us the time to, yeah, and yeah, you make a really good point about the concept of the villain, like the concept of Rhino and Scorpion and Vulture is just like, whatever, who
2: cares? Right. And that's really like, not to get too bogged down with the Batman stuff, it's more just to... To point out the way that a lot of the the actual Sinister Six stuff I thought was sort of disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know even Mister Negative they, they it was better because they kind of explored what it's like to be a really good person and a really bad person. So much of the game was about narratively about trying to do the right thing and be a good person. But um, but yeah, the rest of them just kind of eh, like Electro what who whatever like who gives a shit. So yeah. so
1: one thing and I we were talking about this on text the other day. I mentioned to you is that the whole time where you're. Seeing the spider, all these cutscenes of the radioactive spider <laughs> that escaped with MJ. I was really hoping that it was going to bite mj and Mm. i was kind of disappointed when it bit miles um because i want mj to be a playable superhero badass in the next game uh, especially after playing a full game where she's just sneaking around and she gets killed every time she gets caught by a villain i want her to be able to like take that take that power and just be like really be partners with spider-man and just be kicking ass alongside her.
2: i I get that, but at the same time, I do think that narratively that's less interesting because it's such a neat resolution when they finally sure. figured out, okay, we're going to make this partnership work. I'm not going to worry as much about you and be overprotective. You know, you're going to help me out. And then suddenly she just becomes another Spider-Man and now, yeah. oh, look, no, never mind. doesn't matter. We're both superheroes. Like, that's just, that would be so neat that, like, so, uh, uh, not neat, cool, but neat. Like, it would tie things up so neatly that having her instead, you know, just keep being a normal mortal is maybe more interesting for the story.
1: Yeah. But, uh, 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 so yeah. maybe... So they need to, for the second game... Uh, if you can still play as her, they need to think of better gameplay mechanics for her than just sneaking around. Yeah, and so I have an idea. a little old. I have an idea. Um, okay. So, part of the game, most of the game you're playing as Spider-Man, and maybe you switch off between Peter and Miles, maybe Peter's injured or something and you have to play as Miles for a while, and then you switch to MJ, and MJ is in her office at the Daily Bugle, and you have to learn how to write in reverse pyramid style a news article, <laughs> starting with the lead, <laughs> and then you have to go in order, and you have to go find quotes, and then you have to try transcribe your interviews and you have to pick out the best quotes and figure out how to put them in an article mm-hmm. um, and then you have to deliver your story to the editor and then you have to accept your editor's edits without getting really mad at them and <laughs> then you have to incorporate them and then you have to file by deadline and then you have to do it all again the next day
2: i can imagine um, the uh, i can imagine the reviews for this liked you know and it's like same great web swinging as ever really improved combat and stealth surprisingly involved journalism simulation <laughs> <laughs>
1: Ha <laughs> ha! You would go. It would no. The the tagline would be from web slinging to web writing.
2: Um, Oh God, Spider Man (laughs) Two. That would be. I'm sure that would sell millions and millions more copies than this one.
1: Oh man, what if what if in Spider Man Two, MJ has to deal with the fact that the Daily Bugle is being um, overcome by blogs, and she has to learn how to adapt to the internet, pivoting to video. (laughs) Oh man, she has to start a podcast that competes with uh, with Jay Jonah. Jameson's I was
2: going to say, I actually really like... What I liked about the J. Jonah Jameson podcast is that throughout the entire show, he was basically a kind of right-wing nutjob conspiracy theorist, and there are plenty of those in the real world, but in this universe, it was this kind of fantasy anyways, because every person who calls in, with only a couple exceptions at very low points in the story, but almost always, he's like, Spider-Man is terrible, and blah, 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 and like everyone's against you, and then people just always call in and say, well, no, actually... Now, Spider Man saved me. I mean, he's cool. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. And it would be, you know, you would, it, it would be nice to imagine with the actual real world right wing crazy podcasts if people yeah. would call in more often and be like, no, actually, you know, like, I have my health care because of Obamacare. <laughs> you know, and it's really
1: been kind of great that's, for me. <laughs>
2: that's the biggest fantasy of Spider-Man is radio callers who aren't crazy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like I, it kept coming to me. I'd be like, this really is like the, the most unbelievable thing about this game where I'm flying around the city is that the people calling into this right wing leg podcast are totally normal and setting the, the hosts straight. Exactly. Um,
1: so yeah, so we talked about the gameplay a lot. Obviously, the swinging is amazing. The New York City is just incredibly detailed and elaborate, um, even if it isn't 100% accurate. Um, the combat is great. And I'm sure, as you saw, the combat just keeps getting more detailed. And yeah, elaborate. I'm
2: interested in the new game plus and, and sort of, you know, keep work, like, continuing to work with all the combos and options that I have. I didn't ever quite get to a place where I totally felt like I was in command of everything that was happening because he's so vertical Spider-Man is so like ho- vertically capable and it's possible to just be bouncing off everything and sort of jumping around there was always a little bit of kind of goofiness to it to the fights that I never fully like got a handle on but I think that oh, really? was partly on I me. Felt the opposite way.
1: Oh really? especially with using stealth a lot so I, I would always use stealth I'm sure oh, yeah, you did same. too and like I always learn the environment and then just use that to my advantage in some ways and and like, like for example you can um, when you're shooting just regular webs at an enemy if you just shoot them and they're just standing in the open uh, it'll just kind of stun them but if you shoot them and they're near a wall you shoot them a couple times and they'll stick to the wall and like taking mm-hmm. advantage of little stuff like that um, or like using your abilities like the wall jump and like the swing in midair, like holding abilities, like I-, I felt like by the end of it I had a good command over everything and I was just doing bases and enjoying getting all the bonus objectives and stuff.
2: Yeah, and I mean like, like part of what I was saying, right, is that in New Game Plus I think I would have even more command over everything. Mm-hmm. There's an aspect to how fast you're moving and how quickly you're jumping around the environment. A lot of times the camera isn't exactly pointing where it needs to be, so you're just hitting mm-hmm. triangle and then jumping to the next guy but you're not totally sure where that's going to be. There's a lack of, uh, the game just can't quite keep up with how fast everything is moving in a way Mm -hmm. that it doesn't not work because you're able to just hit triangle and then boom you're fighting another guy oh that's interesting
1: so is that what you did you just zipped around with triangle
2: no I mean I got up in the air a lot I juggled dudes as often as possible there's just enough stuff in the environment a lot of times like say okay here's an example I'm swinging around the city there's a crime in progress I'm way up in the air and Uh I just dive down and I'm fighting a bunch of dudes there's kind of cars everywhere and I'm fighting but like a lot of times you know you're just kind of like you bounce off the wall and then you're kind of over here and you're and you're some guy is shooting at you but you're not totally sure where he is because, you know, there's a ton of people around and it's sort Mm -hmm. of hard to see who's a cop and the cops are shooting and the cop bullets look the same as the other guy. There's a level of chaos to the fights that can be kind of hard to manage. I don't necessarily mean this as a criticism, it's more... Just that was sort of my experience of it. And then That's so the, more I, well, and the more I played, the more I kind of got my head around it and learned to read it. And, you know, then I got abilities also to let me disarm guys from a distance and I got better mm-hmm. at throwing and kind of combining things. There's just a lot to it. There's a lot of moves in it, and it requires a lot of sort of practice and also being in the right environment versus the wrong environment. And some of the environments are much better for fighting than other ones, I think.
1: Well, so the way that I navigated that chaos is by zipping out of combat a lot. So I would, like, use the L2 and R2 to go to perches in the middle of combat Mm -hmm. and, like, assess from above and then kind of dive back in. And it was almost kind of like— aerial bomber style, where I would go yeah. out and then go back in and then go out and go back in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. so, There's a way yeah. to do that. I mean, I think a,
2: Spidey's a little hyperactive. Like, when you mm. run up a wall or when you stick to things, like, he's pretty fast and jumpy. Yeah. You know, which he should be. I mean, he's Spider-Man. Better that than that he's slow and, like, doesn't get out of things too quickly. Uh-huh. But um, it's definitely a very fast-moving, like, kind of explosive type of combat that is yeah. it's really fun, especially when it's when it's working well and you're juggling guys and kind of doing the thing um yeah it yeah, just yeah. is it, it, i'm I really enjoyed my head it. i just it
1: had off. so much fun with it just because of all the quips and the humor and yeah i just really enjoyed it a lot um any final thoughts um on spider-man or like what you want to see in spider-man 2 before we move to the off topic no
2: i'm glad they're going to make another one i think that it's a great foundation and that just because they got the most important thing so fucking right of just yep. how fun it is to just swing around the city i mean the, you know you, with that kind of a fundamental established the sky's the limit i think they're gonna mm-hmm. i think the sequel to this game is going to be phenomenal i mean I, it yeah. just would surprise the shit out of me if it, if it wasn't and um and i'm just looking forward to that and you know i think as much as they were like it, this felt like a first entry and there were some things missing and some kind of sloppiness outside of those really really solid main things clearly the writer's gave such a shit and just really wanted to the actors gave such a shit everyone clearly really gave a shit about this game in a way that you know I, that I, I appreciated it came across in the finished product I guess so, what's really so cool about
1: thing. Spider-Man is that like it's not like the sequel is going to another city because Spider-Man is so core fundamentally New York so they already have not only the fundamentals of swinging but they already have this giant detailed New York City environment that they can just expand and they, play they, they more just, with they
2: Take us to Queens. We got to go to Queens. Right. Right? Oh, That's yeah.
1: Here. 100% we're going to Queens in the next game yeah. and probably all the other boroughs too. Um, maybe we'll go to Westchester. Maybe we'll go to my hometown in,
2: in the suburbs <laughs> Spider-Man of Westchester. Spider Man 2 Westchester expansion. <laughs> oh, my God. That'd be incredible. <laughs> it's um, like kind of just trees and houses. He
1: doesn't have a whole lot to swing on. <laughs> it'd be amazing. Uh, but hey, if you could swing through Central Park, why can't you swing through yeah, Westchester? Yeah, that
2: part always kind of threw me. I'm like, he shouldn't. It always it makes me think of the scene in Homecoming where he tries to swing in the suburbs and he can't. And I, I was always like, how am I swinging through Central Park? There are there are not that many antennas and telephone poles in central park.
1: <laughs> I mean it's sort of like how if you do that move where in combat where you swing up and then you su- or you shoot up and then you yes, swing. Yes, yes. That's an invisible right. how bars about <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so whatever. But yeah, I'm very excited. Um and yeah, it's it's lots of really cool
2: fundamentals for the next game. So I'm very yeah. excited to One see last thought actually next. is a thing that I've noticed about this game is this game is mainstream as fuck. There have just been a lot of people Miranda last night, the guy who wrote Hamilton is just like tweeting that he started playing Um, Spider-Man a couple of like a a political writer I follow is like, I'm going to go buy a PS4 to play this Spider-Man game. It's huge. I think it's, I think it's easy to forget how mainstream Spider-Man the character is and how Mm -hmm. much people love him. And I think that people see this game because when you first see a clip of this game of just swinging through the city, you're like, holy shit, like that looks like a thing I want to play. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if this was something that brought a lot of people who haven't played a video game in a long time back to wanting to play video games, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, agreed. And it's just such a joy to play. It's just so delightful. You never feel Mm -hmm. like you're, you're like, "Ugh!" it never feels like a grind it never feels like there's no killing so that kind of helps in terms of feeling like like you don't have to just shoot a bunch of people and it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like Arkham Knight in that you're not just driving a tank around and mowing right, over and like watching and, awful
2: bioweapons attacks happen right, and horrible right. stuff there's all the time yeah, though I guess the you do see that happen in Spider-Man it just somehow yeah, doesn't feel <laughs> it doesn't feel quite as dark
1: no when the when the dark stuff happens you still have Spider-Man's kind of levity to yeah, to yeah. brighten your mood and it's but just yeah, a man, joy great to play game. it's a great game yeah really good game really just kudos to insomniac and hopefully we'll have uh someone from insomniac on the show in the near
2: future to talk more about it that'd be very Um, cool i'm sure our listeners would love that
1: so let's talk about some off-topic stuff Off topic time. Um, So, real quick, uh, last year, or really last year, American Vandal season one came out, and I watched it after your recommendation. You told me I should watch it, and I watched it earlier this year. Um, It was incredible, hilarious. It's this kind Mm of uh, serial satire that turns into something even bigger, it turns into a drama. And what's interesting about season one of American Vandal is that it starts off really funny, and then the humor kind of diminishes, Mm -hmm. um, and it becomes more of a serious drama in a really good way. Season 2 of American Vandal kind of... Embraces that, um, and it is way less about the humor. There's not a lot of humor in it, and way more about this great, fantastic, dramatic mystery story. Um, almost reminds me of Veronica Mars in the way Ooh. that it just captures teen drama in this really good way, um, and this great mystery story. Um, I loved season two. I know you nice. haven't started watching, or you started watching it and were overwhelmed by all the poop.
2: Yeah, we watched – I mean, I watched an episode and it was pretty gross just because the – so the the prank in the first one was that a guy drew – or somebody drew a bunch of dicks on the cars of the faculty members. And so there was a lot of dick jokes in the first season. The crime in the second season is that someone put laxative in lemonade – at a school and all the kids shit their pants and so then there's just all this sort of found footage style phone footage of people with like just shit all over themselves and yeah it was kind of a lot but that was it definitely didn't make me stop or anything i just have only watched one episode and that's it's really cool to hear that it's good i, I think we'll almost certainly watch the rest of the season yeah, yeah and like i love that's Man.
1: that's very much limited to the first uh episode like that there's still more me. throwbacks to that but it's not it's it's all heavily in the first episode, and also it's so—it's such a good season of TV,
2: especially the last—the last episode that ties all together is just like holy shit! It's incredible. I felt that way about the first season too. I like that in this mm-hmm. one they have. They are now making a Netflix documentary because their first season that they made yes. for their AV club yeah, was so successful so that in the second season, Netflix called them up and said, "Make." So there's this kind of meta layer to it that I, oh. I thought was really funny,
1: and that's how they got the money to make all these recreations of this, right? In right. This, and so uh, now there are
2: season. these, yeah, these 3D high tech recreations of whatever. Um, which, all yeah. right.
1: Uh, so I highly recommend that to anyone's out there. Um, do you have any other uh, off-topic stuff to share other than your music pick of the week?
2: No, I'll just do my music pick this week. I think. Okay. Cool. So, my music pick this week is a very, is a well, it's a sort of jazzy pick, a somewhat jazzy pick. This is a tune by the tenor saxophonist Stan Getz from the album Focus, and it's called Night Rider. And I guess I'll play a clip of it first and then talk about it a little bit. So here is how it begins. It's very dramatic. Here's the dramatic beginning of this song. So, Night Rider is from this album, Focus. It is a very different album for Stan Getz. He's a you know one of my favorite saxophonists. As a saxophone student, he's one of the. He and Sonny Rollins are kind of the two guys that I transcribed a ton of and learned to sound like. Um, people probably know Stan Getz best from uh, like the Girl from Ipanema. He did an album with Giao Gilberto that's um, all Antonio Carlos Jobim bossa nova tunes that are very famous. I mean, you've, everyone's heard them, and he had, kind of has this famous sound. This album, though, is with an orchestra, so. It's just him and then a string section. There's a jazz drummer on a couple of tracks, but it's mostly just sort of these original string compositions with him soloing over it. There aren't really any other albums that sound like this. It's a very—it's a famous album among jazz, you know, aficionados, but it's not very common. And this guy Eddie Sauter—he was the composer and arranger, and he wrote all the music. So it's a super cool album, partly because it's this weird unicorn kind of in jazz, and the style of music was sort of called third stream. It was like—it was kind of like a genre that people tried to make happen and then never really happened. And the idea was, oh, we're gonna take classical and jazz and we're going to combine them and if you think about this this was recorded in 1961 so this is kind of right after the 50s after the hard bop thing and miles and coltrane were doing their thing and everyone was kind of getting experimental with jazz and new harmonies and jazz and there, there's this it makes me think now or at least of like in the 90s where it was like rap and rock and we're going to combine these two kinds of music <laughs> and there's even a kind of a like white music and black music and we're going to put them together and we're going to see what happens and you know it's sort of funny that they tried this and it failed, just sort of like rap rock was also kind of a failure because it's like, it feels manufactured, like you're trying to force two things to, you know, there's plenty of, you know, classical influence in jazz and there's plenty of jazz influence in 20th century orchestral music. But at the same time, it did give us this album, which is this kind of fascinating, amazing album. So it's a really cool one. And um, it's called Focus. I, I recommend people check it out anyway.
1: Very cool. Um, yeah. So uh, fun story. When I was in Portugal, I was in Lisbon, Portugal at the end mm-hmm. of my trip last week. And uh, they are big on this... Uh, Well, they're actually big on tourists and tourism is like, someone told me that it makes up 80% of Lisbon's economy. Um, But one of the things that they appeal to, to like tell tourists about is called Fado and it's Mm -hmm. Portuguese blues music. Um, And then I passed a restaurant and there was a sign on it that said, we don't play Fado, we play jazz. And so I took
2: a picture and I texted you and I said, hey, look, it's all about what you don't play <laughs> the same joke i think one day on the show we should workshop a new jazz joke because the, i bet we could come up with a few other ones for you okay so then you can yeah have, you well can have two i like i also like with.
1: that you call everything nasty and cr- and like really gross and, and disgusting really gross. and everything ta- it's all all the most negative words for like really good stuff and oh yeah
2: he's sick it's disgusting it's revolting yeah, yeah it, actually and it's funny because that stan Getz record i would never really call nasty or gross it's just Really good No, it's coin, not going enough have to be um, called gross. It doesn't kinda have that stankiness to it. It's still it's still pretty clean. <laughs> stanky, yeah. stanky jazz.
1: That's stanky jazz on the subway. That when I got in the subway, oh man, it smelled like jazz. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll pick some stanky jazz for next time. We'll see. On that note, Kirk, I will see you next week. Alright, see you next week, Jason. Kotaku
1: Split Screen is an official podcast of Kotaku.com. It's produced by Kirk Hamilton and me, Jason Tribe. Kirk edits and mixes the podcast and also wrote and performed our theme song and other music. We're a part of the Fusion Podcast Network, where Mundana Mufidi is executive producer of audio. You can find us on popular podcast services like Panoply, NPR Now, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. And we hope you leave us a review if you like what you hear. Find old episodes at kotaku.com slash splitscreen or email us at splitscreen at kotaku.com.